there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. And this is my husband, Lars Grin, and I know he really doesn't expect me to introduce him, but you wonder who in the world this man is up here fiddling with the microphones. So smile, you're on candid camera. <laughs> As I think you know, my topic today is prayer, cooperation with God. Those of you who are note-takers, I'll do my best to help you to figure out what in the world I am trying to say. So talk number one is entitled Power, Wisdom, and Love. Power, Wisdom, and Love. And by way of introduction, I would like to read something from an ancient writer. I really don't know what his dates were. Henri de Tourville, if you want to know his name. And this struck me as being very appropriate to myself, and I would assume to most of you. We all are keenly aware of faults, weaknesses, failures, lassitude, lack of goodwill, and so forth. I don't know why you came today, but I'm sure that many of you have come with a sense of deep personal need and I have no idea what your need is. God knows, and he's the one that can meet it. Probably all of us are aware of our weakness, and certainly I am. There's never a time when I stand before an audience like this and am not aware of the fact that there is no way that I could speak to your needs. It's God himself that will have to do the speaking. But this writer says, such faults, weaknesses, failures, lassitude, lack of goodwill, and so forth, as you see in yourself, are not to cause you fear and anxiety, but rather humility and confidence. You are simply to say, yes, I am like that. Yet all this will not prevent God from making something of me in spite of myself and indeed of making me a thousand times more sanctified than left to myself I should ever have thought possible. This is humility and confidence. And so I pray that if any of you feel that some of the things that I'm saying are way out of sight, way beyond you, that instead of making this a matter of despair and a feeling of utter helplessness and, oh, that Elizabeth Elliot, you know, she's just way out there somewhere and there's no way that I'm ever going to do these things. Remember, you're not looking at Exhibit A of somebody who is an expert in anything, let alone in the question of prayer. And you're not looking at a woman who practices as I know I should practice everything that I preach, my second husband, Addison Leach, and you can relax if you worry about Lars Grin hating to hear about husbands numbers one and two. He doesn't mind at all. In fact, he often encourages me to tell a few stories about Addison Leach because he said, you always talk about Jim Elliott, but you don't mention 
Addison Leach. Well, one little quotation. Ad was a preacher and a writer, and he used to say, I know I'm supposed to practice what I preach, but if I limited my preaching to what I practice, I wouldn't have a whole lot to talk about. <laughs> so, lest anyone imagine that she's looking at somebody who thinks she's an expert in this particular subject, I have news for you. I'm not. I go back to probably the very first prayer that I learned, which was a little children's hymn that my mother used to sing to all of us when she would tuck us into bed at night. Jesus, tender shepherd, hear me. Bless thy little lamb tonight. Through the darkness be thou near me. Keep me safe till morning light. Now that's a simple child's prayer. And children think first of themselves. We're supposed to grow out of that. Most of us are still children in that way, at least in some measure. But it's bless thy little lamb, which is me, through the darkness be thou near me, keep me safe till morning light. All three of the petitions in that first stanza are about oneself. Then it moves into thanksgiving, uh, let's see, how's it go? All this day thy hand hath led me, and I thank thee for thy care. Thou hast warmed me, clothed me, fed me. Listen to my evening prayer. And then let my sins be all forgiven. Bless the friends. And here we move into thinking about somebody else. Bless the friends I love so well. Take them all at last. Take us all at last to heaven, happy there with thee to dwell. Then the second prayer certainly would have been the Lord's Prayer because, and I'm not sure which was first, but every morning after breakfast, my father herded us children into the living room where we had family prayers, beginning with a hymn and then listening to the Bible as my father read to us, and then all of us kneeling while he led us in prayer, and we joined at the end of his prayer in saying the Lord's Prayer together. Like any children, we rattled it off. We memorized it almost before we could talk, and we just rattled it off with absolutely no consciousness of the depth of meaning of the words that we were parroting. I don't think God minds that. I think it's very, very, a very good thing indeed for young parents to stuff their children's minds full of as many hymns and as many scripture verses as they possibly can because your children are going to be memorizing all sorts of junk. They can memorize all the commercials from the radio and TV without any trouble whatsoever. So you might just as well stuff their heads with something that will come back to them later on. And we never have forgotten the hymns that we learned. All of us learned literally hundreds of hymns by heart, not with effort, but effortlessly because we simply sang them and we said the Lord's Prayer. But the older I get, the more powerfully the Lord's Prayer speaks to me. And the more use I make of it, because my prayer list continues to expand and expand and expand, and the needs which are presented to me for prayer become more and more overwhelming and over overpowering, the less I know what to pray for all these individuals, most of whom on my prayer list I know nothing about 
today's needs. And so I pray the Lord's Prayer, and that's where I'm going to be basing my talks today. Thinking about, in this first talk, the first three phrases in the Lord's Prayer. Now I want to tell you a little story by way of illustration of what prayer as cooperation with God means. When my oldest brother, my mother's first child, was about two years old, we lived in Belgium. My parents were missionaries there for a while. And Phil, my brother, was sitting in his high chair and wanted to get down. And he said, want to get down. And mother said, you may get down as soon as you drink your milk. Little imagining that this was going to be a major crisis in the relationship between mother and son. And the crucial point at which the authority of the parent would either be established forever or would collapse. He said, don't want to drink my milk. And she said, well, then you can't get down. And she said it cheerfully, quietly, not dreaming that this was going to be a real crisis. And so he sat very quietly for a long time. And then he said, want to get down. And mother said, drink your milk first, Phil, and then you may get down. And this went on at intervals for nearly two hours. And he didn't scream and he didn't cry. He just made it perfectly clear what his will was as opposed to his mother. Now, why did she insist upon his drinking his milk? Obviously, because she loved him. She was much more wise than he was, and she was much more powerful. And it was within her power to keep the child in the high chair until he drank his milk. Wisdom love, and power. Now, he did not understand that there was anything, that this was anything to do with wisdom or love. He just knew that he was under his mother's power and there was nothing he could do about it, and he thought that maybe he could win the argument. It was going to be, my will be done, in his case. And so they sat, and there were two wills apparently totally contradictory to each other. But then, suddenly, down the street came the sound of the bells on the milk cart, which was, brought, which was pulled by dogs. The big Belgian Bouvier dogs brought the milk to the door. And that was Phil's favorite time of the day. He loved to go out and see the dog cart. Well, guess what? <laughs> he drank his milk in nothing flat. And he was then permitted to get down out of his high chair, and he went out to see the dog cart. Now, of course, Mother was greatly relieved to be saved by the bells. <laughs> but let's think about the analogy here. She did have the power to withhold what he wanted. She had the power to enforce her own will. She had the wisdom to know far better than that little child did what was best for him. But beyond his imagining, she loved him. 
And all of us have probably heard our parents say when they punished us, this hurts me worse than it hurts you. And none of us ever believe that until we become parents ourselves. And then we know that it is absolutely true. And it was a nuisance, certainly, for my mother. And it seemed like an awful waste of time to have to sit there while this little boy refused to drink his milk. But it was the crucial point. And that, of course, is what makes the difference between a peaceful, ordered home and chaos. And unfortunately, there are far too many homes today which are chaos because the two-year-old is running the show. And we see them in church, don't we? We see them in the supermarket. Mothers who are victimized by their children, supposedly, because they have no idea that there is any way of making a two-year-old obey because he will not reason with her. And until you reason with the child, of course, you can't possibly make him obey. Well, that is rubbish. And you know it's rubbish. I don't need to tell you that. Phil's desire to get down was an immediate and short-sighted desire. He had no idea of all the dynamics that were involved in the drinking of one miserable little cup of milk. Drinking the milk was a wise and loving decision of my mother's best in the long run. It had a great deal more to do with the long run than this particular moment. But Phil's cooperation ultimately satisfied both. Now let's look at the Lord's Prayer. It begins with our Father. When you pray, do you think about whose presence you're in? Do you ponder the marvel of being able to say to God, the maker of the universe, the one who stands at the helm of all things, my Father? Isn't it wonderful? And if I say to him, my Father, what am I saying? I'm his child. It establishes my status. It establishes my position before him. I'm not a mere creature. I'm not a slave. I am a child. And remember that this prayer, what our Catholic friends call the Our Father, and there may be some of you here today, and we welcome you, and what most Protestants would call the Lord's Prayer, was given not to the multitudes, but to the disciples. It was given to those who were chosen specifically to cooperate with the Lord Jesus Christ in his redeeming work. These people that he had called alongside, with whom he walked and talked and intimately lived for three years of his public ministry, sharing with them all that his father had given to him, speaking to them the, the words that the father had given to him, the, doing the works that the Father had given him to do, showing them visibly in his human life the life of his Father God. And so he speaks, telling them, this is the way you should pray. Now remember that these disciples had seen Jesus pray. They had undoubtedly heard Jesus pray many times. And yet, and they themselves knew the Jewish prayers and the Jewish law, but there was something very different 
in the way Jesus prayed and the way they were used to praying, obviously, or they wouldn't have said, Lord, teach us to pray. And so when they said, Lord, teach us to pray, he said, when you pray, taking it for granted that they were prayers, say, our Father, who art in heaven. And so he gave this prayer to those who were going to be cooperators with him, participants in his rescue system of the whole world. And that is exactly what you and I, my dear sisters, are meant to be. We are to be participants in God's rescue system through, among other things, our prayers. It is through our prayers that we do the most important work for God. And if you're one of those who looks rather wistfully at people who get up and sing in front of audiences or people who can organize a day like this or people who get to be the speakers or people who run organizations, people who write books, and I do see some of those wistful looks sometimes when people come up and start asking me questions. How did you start writing? How did you get started speaking? If you're one of those who feels a little bit wistful and wishing that you were given that particular gift instead of, instead of the gifts that God gave you, then let me remind you that God has given to every one of us the most important form of work for him and that work is prayer, and I don't know any more important. I don't think there is any, um, well, at least in my own experience, prayer is the hardest work, and I don't believe that there's anything that I do that even comes close to that in importance. But then we don't have a God who has a hierarchy of important things. It is important that I peel an onion if peeling an onion is God's will for me at that moment, right? Now, of course, I can... Uh, I can also pray that while I'm peeling the onion, and I can pray while I'm ironing, and there are things, very few things that we do that we can't pray while we're doing them, except things that require real concentration. So this is work which God has given to each one of us to do. And if he hasn't given you the particular talents that you particularly, particularly desired, remember that God has given you whatever is appropriate to the job that he wants you to do. And I know that all of you are very distracted about what's going over on over here to my right. We don't know. The Lord knows somebody is in need of something. Lord, we pray that you will help whoever this is and help the people who are helping her. We know, Father, that nothing happens without your permission, that you are still at the helm and in charge here and we offer the whole situation to you, in Jesus' name. Now the first three phrases of this prayer are, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's the first petition. The second is, thy kingdom come. The third, thy will be done. So in this talk, we'll just take the first three phrases, including the Our Father, which, of course, is what we're talking about now. So I'll help you with your outline. I always try to give two or three points so that if you forget everything else I say, you might be able to go back and remember that there were one or two points. 
So here are the three points. The first is our Father, the second is hallowed be thy name, and the third is thy kingdom come. I think maybe you can remember those. Now, when we pray to our Father, we are praying to the one who is in charge of his whole kingdom. Now, what is his kingdom? Well, I believe that that word kingdom refers to every place in which the will of God is done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Obviously, heaven is a part of his kingdom, but my heart is also a part of his kingdom. A Christian home certainly should be a part of the kingdom of God, a place where God's will is being done. Not perfectly, of course. Not perfectly in my heart. But God gives us a sphere of service, an area of operation. And so when I pray, I just as one lone, small voice praying to God with bringing, joining my prayers with all the prayers of the whole church throughout all the world, I am participating in the bringing into the kingdom of the will of God. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. We're talking about God who is in charge of this kingdom. Now, when something happens which is diametrically opposed to our will, just for example, whatever happened over here in the corner, we don't know what it was, but it was something upsetting. Who's in charge? The same sovereign Lord, isn't he? We heard in that beautiful song, A Mighty Fortress. He is a bulwark, never failing, and he's still in charge. Now, many of you know how I was a missionary in Ecuador for 11 years, and during that time, I had the biggest thrill of my whole life up to that point, which was marriage to a fellow missionary named Jim Elliott. And then you also know that that marriage didn't last very long. It was 27 months before Jim was killed, along with four other missionaries. Now that certainly was not according to my idea of how I wanted things to work. But I had been praying all my life, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And ever since 1956, when that happened, I have been meeting people, literally, everywhere I go. I mean, virtually, literally. I can't say that every time I go to the grocery store I meet somebody that says something about it, but literally every time I go to speak anywhere, which is often and in many different places, people will say either I remember when that happened, if they're old enough to remember it, or my mother read me that story, or this was the first Christian book I ever read, or we're on the mission field because of what happened with those five men. And each time I hear this story, and people often sort of apologize, and they'll say, well, I, I know you're tired of hearing this, and you hear it everywhere you go, but I just want to tell you that I'm one more of those people. I'm not tired of it. I am thrilled and consider it an unspeakable privilege to have been a part of that story. But each time it enlarges my vision of what the kingdom of God is and the kind of thing that God brings out of what appear to us to be horrible tragedies. God is at the helm and he is steering the ship 
and he knows what he's doing and he's not ever distracted from his job. He knows exactly what he's doing. His attention never wanders. And so I have a glimpse of him to whom I come, this great God who choreographs the stars and the tides and the winds and the animals and all these glorious creatures and the magnificent change of the leaves in the fall, exactly timed so that the leaves will be gone before the, when the snow comes, and when the snow comes, they will stand there in their skeletons apparently dead, and we know that out of that seemingly dead skeleton was going to come glorious new life in the spring. But it wouldn't happen if it were not for the death, the death that happens in the fall. And we see the blood-red sign of death in those leaves. Glorious death, because out of that comes life. And this is just one glimpse of what God does. We have this glimpse all around us in the fall season. I have this glimpse every time I think of the story of those five men who could not if, have possibly imagined the endless ripple effect of what their simple obedience, and that's all it was, it was just an act of simple obedience, accomplished. They were not looking for dramatics or heroics or a stunt, and they weren't explorers or anthropologists who thought they were going to make a lot of money out of this or anything. It was just merely the next thing that seemed to be on God's program. So everything, when I put myself in the presence of God, I put myself in his strong, peaceful, loving, wise, powerful presence. And I present to him my petitions. And everything that I ask is brought into those petitions. My sins, my ambitions, my struggles, my sufferings, my fears. What is uppermost in your mind this morning? Sin, struggles, suffering, ambition, fear, loneliness? I don't know. But all of it is brought into the circle of the will of God, and it looks different in that light. It does look different in that light, doesn't it? I mean, we can all suddenly think, oh dear, what's going on over here? And oh dear, well, we can't listen to the speaker now. And everything, everybody gets all upset. And then just a reminder that God's in charge. He does know what he's doing. He does allow this to happen for a reason better than we can imagine. Even if Satan has something to do with it. And don't forget that. Remember, Satan was the one who caused the thorn. It was called a messenger of Satan, Paul's thorn in the flesh. But Paul also said, it was given to me, obviously by God, in order to keep me from becoming absurdly conceited. Now, I'll just put that little parenthesis in there because it's a wonderful assurance from Scripture that even when Satan has something very clearly to do with it, God is still in charge and God's going to bring something out of it. So this is my confidence when I come and say, my Father, our Father. And I know that he has the power and the wisdom and the love that are limitless and exactly proportioned to what needs to be done, to every need that I bring to him. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. But out of his 
limitless, I'm not sure that's the right word, riches in Jesus. He giveth and giveth and giveth again. Second point, hallowed be thy name. Now his name is love. God is love. And when you and I are acting just like the little two-year-old in the high chair, want to get down. And God is saying, no, not yet. And we pit our wills against this wise, loving will of God. We are denying ourselves the greatest joy in accepting his love. But we just, it takes us a lifetime to figure this out, doesn't it? If God teaches it to us unmistakably and unequivocally in one experience, next week we've forgotten all about it. Well, Lord, I just don't see how this can possibly fit into your kingdom. I don't see how this can hallow your name. We are creatures of sense. We see through our eyes the beauty around us. We smell the lovely smell of fall, and to me one of the saddest things about fall nowadays is that we can't burn leaves anymore, at least not where we live. And those of you that have got white hair in this audience, you can remember the days when that was the most fun thing about all of fall. We loved raking leaves because we loved burning leaves. And I love that smell. Well, there's still wonderful smells of the fall and the harvest and all of that. And we, we see these, and probably we are reminded of God when we are suddenly struck to the heart with the beauty. But we always want visible evidence, don't we, in our own lives. We want to be able to understand what this word, hallowed be thy name, means. But faith sees God in everything. The eye of faith sees God, even in circumstances which are not to our tastes and preferences. Paul said, these little troubles, which are really so transitory, are working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while now, this is the catch right here. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen, for the things which are seen are, vis are temporal, and the things which are unseen are eternal. And it takes a lifetime to practice looking at the things which are unseen. So when I pray, hallowed be thy name, I'm, it brings me a sense of the great reserves that God is keeping from me. The dim, hidden, not understood mysteries. The dread power of God. So tremendous. Now we happen to live on the ocean and when I think about the tides, it blows my mind that that tide hits its peak at exactly the minute which is on a little card that I have on my desk that tells me when high tide will be. It never fails. But think of the power of, that, of those tons of cold salt water that have to rise to exactly that point. And we can tell where it is because there's a black line on our rocks because of the tide. And then it goes back down again. 
Now, if God can run that, do you think maybe he can run your life? <laughs> if he can bring the seven-year locusts out of the ground at exactly the right moment, if he can get, make the chick start tapping on the inside of the shell of that egg at exactly the right moment, if he can make that woman go into labor and bring that baby out at exactly the right point, do you think maybe, possibly, just possibly, he could run your life? Well, how do we feel about that? The world is always asking, how do you feel about this and that and the other thing? <laughs> I'm not so sure that's very important. The question is, what does the book say? And the book tells me that I can have total confidence and I can rest my soul. I can hang my soul on those promises and they will never, never let me down. And yet, and yet, we keep looking at the things which are seen. The prayer, hallowed be thy name, cleanses me from egoism, if I pray it in honesty. I get down on my knees and I think, oh, I've got to speak to all those people at Liberty Corner tomorrow. And what are they going to think? And the Lord just shuts me down and says, it doesn't make any difference who you are. Let them know who I am. And so I'm cleansed by the thought of who he is. Thy name. And the life and work of every one of us, you know, is without any significance whatsoever, unless it's lived for the glory of God. You know, we really aren't worth anything. The world is telling us we are, and that's one of the things, that, one of those many things that we have to say sorry, but that's not what this book tells me. We're always having to compare the thinking of the world with the straight edge of Scripture. And the world says, you're special, and it's your life, and you owe it to yourself, and if it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, forget it. And, you have a right to your own body. And my Bible says exactly the opposite. I am not my own. I am bought with a price. Therefore, I am to glorify not Elizabeth Elliot, but God in my body. Hallowed be thy name. And you know, I go back to the high chair again, and I think of Phil and how when Mother died, all six of us children were able to get to the funeral, which was one of God's miracles because we live very far apart, and each of us in turn spoke for about two minutes about some characteristic of mother, and the first, we took these in chronological order, so of course the first to speak was Phil, who is three years older than I am, which makes him, he will be 68 in December, and I thought how each of us hallows the name of our mother now. The older we get, and the more we see what mother poured into our lives, and our father, of course, as well, the more we hallow the name of mother. But the child in the high chair certainly does not hallow the name of mother. I mean, she is his arch enemy, right? And he is determined that he's going to win this battle, and mother knows that she is going to. So our responses to God either hallow or do not hallow his name. Our responses are what matter. 
It's not the tragedy in your life that's going to make a saint out of you or the blessing. It's your response. God can pour out all the blessings in the world on you if you don't turn around and thank him. It certainly isn't going to make a saint out of, uh, out of you, nor if tragedy strikes and you shake your fist in God's face instead of saying, Lord, I don't understand this, but I will accept it then the results are going to be very different. Our responses either hallow or do not hallow his name. And the eternal purpose will be seen the more we love him. The more we learn to love God, the more we will trust his decisions, the more we will trust him even in the midst of incomprehensibilities. And as Evelyn Underhill wrote, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. Put that down on your paper, okay? <laughs> if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. But it was not Elizabeth Elliot that thought that one up. It was Evelyn Underhill. And so the third thing is, thy kingdom come. Now when I was beginning to think about the words of this prayer, I suppose I was in my teens, and I began to seriously try to figure out what in the world I was rattling off here, I realized that these are very broad, general petitions, and I thought, how am I ever going to see whether God answers them or not? What's the use of praying for things that you just can't even imagine what the answers are going to be? And of course, we have to pr proceed from the general, which is this prayer, thy kingdom come, a very broad generality, thy will be done, and bring it right down to, well, what does this mean in my life? And how is this going to affect the way I live and the way I respond to what God is doing in my life? So I pray that the kingdom of God will come knowing that it means the fulfillment of his high and holy and mysterious will, his purposes, will be proceeding in that kingdom. Now what have I to do with all that? And what difference can the prayer of one woman possibly make in the coming of the kingdom of God? Well, if his kingdom is my heart, then it has got to make a difference if I offer to him all my heart. The psalmist said, to thee I offer all my heart. And I believe that that word heart in the scriptures is equivalent to our word will nowadays. It is the seat of decision-making, not emotions. We're going to get down to a little bit more nitty-gritty on the difference between the will and the emotions later on. But the kingdom of God in my heart is at my disposal either to keep or to offer. And so I offer to him my heart by way of saying, Thy kingdom come. Whatever contribution this one tiny person, this insignificant woman, in 1991 can make to your kingdom, Lord, I offer it, and I have nothing to offer except all that I am and all that I have, and all that I do and all that I suffer. Where the whole realm of nature, mine, 
that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. With that, I think I better stop. Okay, I'm going to add six minutes to this talk, so be prepared. We've talked about the first three phrases of the Lord's Prayer. First of all, our Father. Secondly, hallowed be thy name. And third, thy kingdom come. In Colossians 1.13, we find that you and I, if we have received Christ as Lord of our lives, have been translated into his kingdom already. Have you ever thought about that? First, first uh, chapter of Colossians, verse 13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us away into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom our release is secured and our sins forgiven. We live in the kingdom of his dear Son. How far are we prepared to go to cooperate with the high and holy purposes of that kingdom? Are we willing to be participants in his rescue system? That is what this prayer ought to test us on. Each phrase ought to remind us that we do already live in the kingdom of his dear son, Jesus Christ. And it certainly ought to make a very practical and I would hope visible difference in our lives. If it doesn't make a difference in your home life, then the reality and the validity of your Christian faith would certainly be open to question, wouldn't they? Because the real test is the people you live with and work with. That is the acid test, not how you look in church and how well you perform in the choir or do what you think of as spiritual work. That's not the real test. The real test is in the hidden place that the world doesn't see and even that hidden place which nobody even in your family knows about, the place that only God sees and what you do when nobody's looking. That's when you think nobody's looking. That's the real test of our willingness to pray with all our hearts, thy kingdom come. So now we come to the third petition, which is, thy will be done. And it's really very difficult to separate these two, isn't it? They run into each other. If I'm going to be willing to participate in the kingdom of God, then I have to be willing for his will to be done in my life. And that gets right down to where I live and to the nitty-gritty, and that's where the scriptures quit preaching and go to meddling, telling me that it has to be real in my life. And when I was about 14 years old, I began to think about the words of hymns that I had been singing all my life from memory. My favorite hymn was Beneath the Cross of Jesus. And I suddenly was stopped, sort of jerked to a stop, when I came to that phrase uh, in, I can't remember whether it's the second or the third stanza, I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place, I ask, no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. 
Can you honestly sing a hymn like that? Or are you lying when you sing? And I realized that I was lying because I was asking for all kinds of sunshine in addition to the sunshine of his face. I wanted a husband, among other things. I wanted children. I wanted a home. I wanted to be a missionary. I wanted this and that and the other thing. How could I say I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face? But back to that quotation that I read you this morning from the Abbe de Tourville, these reluctances, these feelings, these weaknesses, my inability, honestly, to do what I know I ought to do, or to pray the way I ought to pray, or to sing the hymn as I had been so glibly singing it, is not reason for despair. And if some of you are already beginning to despair, you've already forgotten what I read you at the very beginning, haven't you? It's a reason for humility and confidence. And what is humility other than simply the truth? That is what humility is. And as soon as you start thinking you're humble, then you're not. <laughs> because the truth is that none of us is truly humble. You know the story of the man in the church that won the humble button. <laughs> but they had to take it away from him because he wore it. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today, and will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>